It's one thing to talk about health when you're speaking of it from a relatively detached point of view. And when you yourself are in excellent health, which uh, I'm fortunate enough to be the vast majority of the time. But right now I'm in a, a very unusual spot of having to deal with a relatively minor health issue. On f This is uh, a Sunday, and on Friday, so just two days ago, I had two basal cell carcinomas removed from my forehead. And this all just kind of came upon me really quickly. I went to see my dermatologist for my quote-unquote regular appointment, which is supposed to be every year, but somehow I let three years go by uh, before... You know, I, I basically saw him once three years ago. At that point, I guess I was 44-ish, 45-ish. Uh, and um, I have a history of uh, skin cancer in the family. My skin is super pale, and I've, I'm like got Irish and English in the ancestry. And uh, I was before the generation that had sunscreen. So as a kid, I just burned up all the time. And um, you just get a sunburn, you'd peel, you know, your siblings would, you know, peel the skin off of you after your sunburn went away and you just go out and get burned again. So all the, the sun damage that I went through as a kid and plus you got the the fair skin and the, the family history and everything. So I was a little bit worried about it, so as soon as I got insurance, I went and saw the dermatologist, and everything looked fine. And so, given that I, I'm not out in the sun that much, and when I am out in the sun, I have the sunscreen on and everything. Um, for the most part, I mean, occasionally, I might get a little bit of a sunburn, but um, anyway, for whatever reason, I let three years go by. And when I saw him this time... Uh, he noticed a little tiny thing on my forehead that I didn't really even notice. He did a biopsy and they, um, called me back a week later and said, yes, it's a basal cell carcinoma. Basically gave me three choices as to how to deal with it. Um, number one, I could go back to see him and he could basically just kind of burn it out, um, they call it curatage, I believe, um, is that procedure. And that, I guess, it has a high success rate. You end up with a, kind of a hole in your head if you get it on the forehead. And you're going to have, uh, obviously, have a, a scar. Usually you have like a roundish scar. Now, my father had a whole bunch of those when he um, started getting these things in his 40s and 50s and 60s, I think, too. I think my dad had 10 or 15 of these things. So um, anyway, I'm the first in my generation to go through it. But my choices were to have this curatage thing where they kind of burn it out of you. Um, I, I was also given the option of going to a, a plastic surgeon to just basically kind of cut it out. And then there was a third option, which is called the Mose procedure, M-A- I'm sorry, M-O-H-S, Mohs. And the deal with that is is um, you go in there and it's it's supposed to be the state-of-the-art gold standard procedure for basal cell carcinomas from everything that I read where they try to um, conserve the most tissue possible. They just basically they take out a little bit of tissue and on-site they run into some lab, look at it, and if that's all they need to do, they sew you up, um, but they can kind of precisely map based on the um, the lab stuff and the pictures that they take where the roots are. And if they have to go back in, they know exactly where to go back in to get the rest of the tumor out without getting out any unnecessary, you know, any healthy tissue unnecessarily. So anyway, um, Moe's procedure was the recommended one, and it was the one that had the best um, statistics as far as the fewest chance of recurrence of getting cancer back in that same spot. It was supposed to be the best cosmetically as well because you were dealing with a, a surgeon who's 
specializing in this sort of thing. So given that the, uh, the little spot was in the center of my forehead, I went with the most, you know, cosmetically promising procedure. I did have to drive three hours. Um, I live in New Mexico, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. So I had to drive three hours to Albuquerque, New Mexico to get the procedure done. And I didn't really have too much time to worry about it. I mean, I went from thinking I was fine to having a little tiny biopsy red dot on my forehead that I was kind of annoyed with to suddenly realizing I was going to have to have this cancer excised. Uh, I went, showed up um, Friday to the procedure. I got a speeding ticket on the way, which pissed me off big time. I was kind of anxious about uh, getting to the surgery on time, having to drive so far. And, uh, you know, between southern New Mexico and Albuquerque is just a wasteland where it's it's easy to, to drive fast. And I've made that drive a million times. But I get a speeding ticket, which almost causes me to be late for the surgery, stresses me out a bit. But I get there, and he's prepping me for... Um, the surgery to excise this uh, basal cell carcinoma and he notices another little bump on my forehead and he said ah that looks a little suspicious and he he biopsies that right there on the spot comes back 10 minutes later says yeah that's cancer too so how my my first dermatologist missed that I don't know but uh, since I was already driven all that way he just said F it, let's just take them both out now. So obviously it was all hitting me pretty quickly. So I said, whatever, do what you got to do. So he uh, he cuts out both of these, um, these skin cancers, bandages me up, um, gives me a prescription for pain meds in case it starts to hurt later on that night, which you know wasn't really clear if that was going to happen or not. I drive three hours home. I got a huge bandage on my forehead that takes up like my entire forehead. Get home, do some grocery shopping, buy the stuff for the the wound care, you know, get some some stuff that I'm going to need to take care of the wound over the next week. And uh, yeah, it definitely started to hurt. I guess when someone digs in to your forehead, um, it's going to hurt. So I took some extra extra strength Tylenol. I didn't take the, the prescription pain meds because it didn't hurt me that bad. You, you just did some ice and uh, was able to get some sleep that night and woke up the following day, which was yesterday. And that's when I had to take the bandage off to kind of clean it and uh, redress the wound. And that's when I, uh, I almost shit myself. I'll, I'll post some uh, some photos on, on my blog where this podcast will be embedded. But, you know, I I was expecting, I guess, since this procedure was supposedly the, the most cosmetically conservative of your, of your tissue is supposed to leave the best, you know, scar profile. Um, I was not expecting what I saw when I took the bandages off. I mean, I took them off and it's like, I look like I was attacked by an eagle. I mean, just uh, two, um, at least inch and a half long vertical scars with all these sutures in it. Uh, looked pretty bad. And of course, uh, I have to admit, you know, given the where the the cancer was, you know, I I am someone that does have a bit of vanity still, even at my age. Um, I was hoping not to be, you know, disfigured. And I'm also, you know, getting ready to go back to work next week. Um, as I've mentioned before, I work as an elementary school counselor, so I'm going to be working with the kids. And I'm, you know, also just a little bit amped up to be starting work again. And I didn't want to have to deal with having like a disfigurement and, you know, wound care and everything right as I'm starting work. But fortunately, I have a few more days left to uh, to recover from this before I have to go back. But anyway, uh, the wound, as you'll see if you look at the pictures, looked from my standpoint was pretty hideous. Um, but I, you know, I did what I was supposed to do, kept it clean, put the bandage back on. I'm not allowed to like exercise, or uh, I can't have any beer, which is a 
you know, a bit of a sacrifice. All because I guess when you have sutures in your head or anywhere else, it has to do with blood flow and blood pressure. I, I don't quite get it, but so I've missed, you know, definitely out of my routines, um, both uh, exercising and my nightly one beer that I usually have. But I've been just, you know, sitting around um, Googling shit about skin cancer, which is, I'm sure, the worst thing that that a person can do. But I made it through yesterday, um, slept fine last night, got up, looked in the mirror, and uh, I w- had another surprise waiting for me. One that shouldn't have been a surprise because the, the surgeon told me that this could happen, but apparently a lot of times... On the second day, if you have surgery on your forehead like this, you'll get uh, swelling around your eyes. Sometimes it'll even be so bad, it'll, your eyes will sh- be swollen shut or you'll have black eyes. But in my case, uh, the swelling like pooled up between my eyes and in the inner corners of my eyes. And I look like a fucking cabbage patch kid. or I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, but I didn't look like myself when I looked in the mirror, which freaked me out a little bit. And, uh, it did distress me somewhat cause I was like, shit, is my, are my eyes going to seal shut? I mean, <laughs> what the hell? But, uh, again, more internet searching and apparently this is totally common and it's just something you have to deal with and it might take several days to clear up. And so again, I'm glad that, uh, I was able to get in so quickly. So at least I have. Uh, I've got, let's see, tomorrow and Tuesday. I've got two more days to recover before I have to go back to work. And then uh, I have a couple of days of being back at work when the students aren't there. And then the following week, um, the students will arrive. So hopefully by then, my my appearance won't be so hideous that the, especially the younger kids I work with, like kindergartners, won't, like first graders and so forth, won't... Uh, be running away from me in terror but so yeah it's uh it's definitely been kind of a whirlwind because like I said um I have been fortunate and and I've always felt kind of invulnerable I mean I've destroyed my knees with sports injuries and I've had multiple surgeries there but other than that my health has always been excellent um I tend to be maybe overconfident I'm thinking my immune system is like imperturbable, you know, and uh, I don't usually get sick and, uh, and I knew I was at high risk for this type of skin cancer. Basal cell is not life threatening. Um, but, uh, you still have to have them, you know, take it out. And the worst part for me is that now, you know, all of a sudden I went from never having a skin cancer to having two. And once you have two, you're in the special category of being someone at high risk. I was already at elevated risk because of the family history and the fair skin. But now that I've had two, obviously there's something with the way, you know, DNA repair in the skin cells. I don't know what it is, but, um, once you get them, you can keep getting them and getting them regularly. Some people just get them every year. Like I said, my dad had probably 10 or 15. One of my uncles had many, many of these things. So that's the part that's uh, distressing me more than anything. And here I am just very kind of getting over a surgery and uh, realizing that, um, you know, my appearance could be altered for the rest of my life just as it stands now. Although I'm told, as hideous as the scars look now, that you know, they, they're not going to be too noticeable, you know, in a year, say. But uh, the idea that this is just going to be a regular thing now, and uh, every time I go to the dermatologist, I'm going to be bracing for yet another uh, piece of bad news. That that part is freaking me out. I suppose that's anyone that's had cancer of any kind, that idea of recurrence is something that can get into your head. So, yeah, I mean, this is, again, this is the ultimate test. Uh, I've gone on uh, on this podcast about the, the importance of mindfulness and all this other stuff. And it's, it's so easy when you're not uh, in a situation to advocate for all these, um, 
you know, integrative approaches and mind-body things and have a positive attitude, um, that's all just uh, gone out the window for me these last couple of days. I mean, I've been absolutely obsessing about all the information on the internet. On the one hand, of course, I want to um, learn everything I can about this because although on the one hand there's not much I can do because the damage is, you know, cumulative damage from uh, when I was a kid up until my adulthood and even if I were to live in a, in a cave and not be exposed to the sun for the rest of my life, I could still get many more of these things. But obviously it does help to um, not to not make it worse, you know, so I'm going to obviously change my habits and be even more vigilant about wearing sunscreen and hats and all that. Um, but, you know, so I was also trying to figure out, is there anything else I can do? And the only thing that I could find that is remotely um, scientifically credible is there's a, a form of vitamin B3 called uh, nicotinamide, I believe. And you can take that. It's just vitamin. And if you take it as a supplement, there is recent research that shows um, that it's promising. I mean, the research is really scant, and they obviously need to do some follow-through. But there's been a couple of uh, solid studies that show that if you're a high-risk person like myself, taking this vitamin B3 supplement can reduce your risk of recurrence something like... 23% or something. So it's obviously, you know, not gonna be the silver bullet. It doesn't mean that I'm still not going to get recurrences, but it sounds like it can help. There doesn't seem to be a downside as far as side effects other than the cost of having to buy this vitamin and take it. So I don't know. I'll, I'll run that by my dermatologist when he takes the sutures out, but, uh, so, yeah, I've, I've been um, uh, mentally just thrown for a loop. I can uh, get, I feel a lot more compassionate for people that have more serious problems. I mean, I have some, a uh, couple friends of my wife that are both women in their 30s were diagnosed with cancer this year, serious cancer, um, like chemo, the whole nine yards, and one of the, uh, one of my wife's friends, it's like a stage four situation and the, the, uh, prognosis is bad. Like she's not expected to live for, you know, more than a couple of years maybe. And again, this is a, like a 37 year old woman and uh, my wife's other friend had to go through, you know, full course of chemo for breast cancer. And it's, uh, you know, it's obviously what I'm going through is nothing in comparison, but, um, you always look around and you know that people are going through shit, but when it's not you, it's, uh, it just doesn't hit you in the same way. So this is one of the, the few times when it is me and it definitely sucks. And it's, uh, it's a lot harder than, uh, I imagined it would be to just kind of go back to, you know, having a, a good attitude, a positive attitude, uh, sitting down, meditating. Um, I've not been able to do that. I've been uh, definitely anxious about future reoccurrences, dwelling on uh, certain things in the past, you know, like, why did I wait three years? You know, maybe if I gone every year, this wouldn't have happened or it wouldn't have been as bad. Um, I could have been more vigilant about protecting myself from the sun. You know, I was, I was foolish. I was arrogant. My whole attitude, which when it comes to the medical system, I try to engage with the healthcare system as little as possible. I never go to the doctor, um, even the primary care doctor for blood work or anything. I just, I just don't want to deal with it. Um, and again, I went to the dermatologist three years ago cause I had a a little spot on my nose. So I was just actually worried about it. Turns out that was a benign thing. And actually I went this time. Um, what prompted me to go wasn't that it had been three years, but I had another little thing on my nose 
that wouldn't heal and I was worried about it. And so that prompted me to go. And it turns out that thing, at least according to the dermatologist, was not something to worry about. But then he found the other thing on my forehead. And then the second dermatologist who did the surgery found the second thing on my forehead. And here I am now with the the eagle claws um, on my forehead. So that's been the dominating the health uh, news in my world. Um, we'll see as things progress again. I mean, I'm, I'm getting into the acceptance phase now where this is just it. I mean, this is the situation. I, I have to move forward. I guess it's normal that I'll be a little worried and freaked out since it's only been two days. Um, and I'll just settle in and take the precautions I can. And if I, you know, continue to have issues with this, I'm just going to have to keep having these surgeries or just kind of go with it. So, um, what else can I ramble about in the realm of health? Um, I heard a couple interesting podcasts. Some of you might be familiar with Tim Ferriss. I've never been a, a huge fan of the Tim Ferriss show. It's a little, I don't know. I mean, I think Tim is a, is a cool guy, but his, his whole vibe is kind of like optimal performance. And he's a, he's a very, um, how, how should I say it? He's, he's, he's very focused and kind of serious and very heady about, you know, maximizing productivity. That's that type of thing. That's a little, uh, at odds with my whole vibe. Although I could probably, you know, learn a lot from that more disciplined type of approach. But, uh, he does have guests on his show from time to time that are really interesting. And, um, I listened to him, uh, talk to Michael Pollan about Michael Pollan's book, Changing Your Mind, about psychedelics. I believe I talked about that on a previous podcast. But it was really fascinating, so I got to hear, you know, Michael Pollan talk for another two hours on that subject. But um, one of the things that, uh, that Tim said that I found interesting, and this may have been in a different context... I might have seen a video on YouTube or something. Yeah, I believe that's true. He was talking about just giving a little primer on mindfulness. And uh, I'll put the video on my blog where this podcast will be embedded so you can check it out. It's just like a few minutes. And I, was, I thought it was really good because he, he just talked about it in such a simple way that I think for people that um, don't really buy all the hype on meditation or sounds like kind of woo-woo to them. Um, he just put it out there in such clear uh, terms, uh, and it, I, I think it would inspire a lot of people who've resisted trying it. Um, it would inspire them maybe to give it a shot. He also referred to meditation in this, uh, in this broader term that I really liked. He calls it present state awareness training. And over the years, I've wanted to find different language to talk about mindfulness and attention training in a way that's just more secular and, and sciencey sounding. Um, mindfulness has that, you know, Buddhist vibe, or uh, it's not even really a great term, you know, mindfulness. I mean, mind as opposed to the body, it sounds a little like it has too much to do with thinking. I don't think it's a great term. And now, of course, it's it's out there in the popular culture so much. It has different connotations. So um, over the years, I've tried to come up with other terms. Uh, one of uh, an old teacher of mine named Charles Tart, who was a guy who taught at the California Institute of Integral Studies when I went there. And he's somebody who did a lot of writing and researching around altered states of consciousness. He used the term controlled attentional practices, or maybe it was controlled attention practices, C-A-P, to, to have a, a term that was something that wouldn't just refer to meditation, but really any sort of attentional training. 
But uh, something about Tim Ferriss's framing of it, present state awareness training, I think really gets at the heart of it because I think people can kind of understand that what that means to be really present. And um, the, the thought that you can train that, that that's a skill that you can learn to be more and more present I think kind of gets at the heart of it. So that's something I liked and it's something I need to do. Definitely need to do some present state awareness training. Um, Maybe when I'm done with this podcast, I'll do that. Uh, So that was interesting. Um, It's been a while since I podcasted. So forgive me for just rambling as usual. I haven't been doing this as often as I, I wanted to. Another thing over the last couple of months or since the last episode that I found interesting was there was a piece um, well actually I I saw on real time with Bill Maher he did a a video where he referenced a uh, a New York Times opinion piece by an author named Pagan Kennedy and I'll link to that piece in that piece Kennedy the title of it is the secret to a longer life, question mark, don't ask these dead longevity researchers. And uh, and when and Bill Maher basically in his his video commentary was just summarizing this piece. And uh, Kennedy goes through a whole host of uh, people that over the years wrote books or had programs that they thought were going to be the the secret to living forever and just kind of goes one by one through how how so many of them died young so you know people would put out a book having this or that diet that was supposedly going to make you live forever but they themselves died at you know age of 59 so one after another there's just example after example of uh these longevity researchers that thought they were on to the next big thing, whether it's a reduced calorie diet or, you know, paleo, this, that, and the other thing, whatever the the latest fad was, um, Kennedy's noting that a lot of these people that were the sort of the gurus of these movements didn't live very long. Now, of course, that's, you know, anecdotal, But um, the general point she was trying to make is we tend to put a little too much weight on um, the decisions that we make as individuals. Like we think if we change our diet or we do yoga or we take a certain supplement, that that is going to have a a dramatic effect on our lifespan or our health. And what she's trying to emphasize here is that it's really the decisions that we make as a collective or as a society that make the big differences way beyond anything that we're going to do as an individual. So of course you want to do the individual lifestyle things like not smoke and eat well and exercise and meditate and all that. But we want to put at least some focus or maybe even more focus on working uh, toward policies and um, advocating for changing our collective behaviors. Uh, One thing that she points out is like um, the lead levels in people's blood um, that were measured back in the 70s when we had leaded gas just the the move of changing uh, the laws so that leaded gasoline was not a thing reduced lead levels in, in people's blood by massive amounts um, and there's been other public policy examples where um, you know you make a big change and uh, it could be back when there was a a hole in the ozone layer and everybody freaked out and they made uh, certain changes in laws and then that whole closed. L.A., I know, used to 
have a ton more smog than it does now even and it's because actual policies were changed and um shit like that given sort of the anti-scientific vibe that we have and the political gridlock ultimately are obviously going to be uh foundationally important when it comes to health um because no matter how you eat if that all the air is polluted uh you know you're still going to end up getting some sort of hideous disease or if the water is contaminated you know no matter how much you're jogging um you're still going to be fucked basically um if the the foundations of your of the environment are not uh, are not there so it's uh, she's just making the point that uh don't lose sight of the fact that it's our collective decisions that tend to have much more of an effect than individual decisions when it comes to our health. And so it's an interesting piece. I'll, I'll post the Mar video and the, and that piece if you want to sort of read more about that. Uh, let's see. Uh, maybe as a, as a final thing, something that, that caught my mind a while back, um, I believe I just stumbled across this on Twitter and I had gotten back, as I mentioned in my last podcast, from visiting my friends in North Carolina and sort of reminiscing about how I used to live back in those days and a lot of the things that I missed about uh, living in Carborough, North Carolina, which was a very unique place uh, as far as the, the, the types of places I lived in that everything was walkable. My buddies and I, when we we played in a band together, we lived in a house and we could just walk everywhere. You know, all the clubs, the bars, coffee shops, even the grocery store, I would walk to and walk and walk back home with a handful of bags. And there was something about living in that type of environment that uh, I didn't really appreciate, I think, at the time, how what the effect of living in a place like that was beyond the fact that, you know, I was younger then. And so I tend to look back at that time in my life from a nostalgic viewpoint, but it's not just that when I went back there, even though the town had changed quite a bit, I could still kind of have a feel for, uh, just the benefits of living in a place like that. And, uh, this article, I stumbled across on on Twitter sort of hammered that home Um, and it has to do with how our built environments affect um, our relationships specifically friendships when you look at the housing choices that we typically make somebody my age in their 40s or in their 30s when you settle down and you live in uh sort of the middle class world that i live in the idea is that you're you leave your parents house you get a place out in the suburbs usually you even leave the city that you grew up in or the state even like in my case and you go out and you have your own single family home out in the in the burbs and you're surrounded by people you don't know. And usually you never get to know. I can say in my case, that's absolutely true. I've been living here in my house, which is the first house I've ever owned. And I don't know, I don't know any of my neighbors. Now I I say, Hey, to them at the, at the mailbox, we've got one of those communal mailboxes. I'll say hello. Or if I see them outside in their yard, Hey, how's it going? But I don't know them. I couldn't ask them or wouldn't ask them to, keep an eye on my house if I was leaving town or they're they're not they're not my friends they're not part of my support system and of course my family lives thousands and thousands of miles away as I mentioned my best friends still live in North Carolina which is thousands and thousands of miles away so you know just my living choice to to move away from family and friends and to have this house out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it has, uh, 
it has effects not just on making new friends. I mean, I can attest to this. I've, uh, I've only got, you know, a couple of people that I would consider friends out here. And a lot of it has to do with this new structure of my life. You know, like most people, I'm not running into anyone except at work. You know, I get up, I hang out of my house, I go to work, and I come back. It's not like it was back in Carborough, North Carolina, when everything, well, let me put it this way, everything was different. Number one, I lived in a house with four other guys. So this article, you know, points this out too, that uh, spontaneous interactions with people, just the spontaneous uh, encounters that you have when you live with people, uh, that's what, you know, friendship is all about. That's why when you go to off to college, for those of us who've lived in the dorms, you know, you're running into people constantly, uh, you know, on the way to the cafeteria at a class, you have all kinds of spontaneous encounters that that's a reason above and beyond the fact that you tend to be younger, that you make, uh, the most of your enduring intense friendships when you're young because of the structure of your life again if you've lived a life like I have which is I'm, I'm admittedly is a you know very much a middle-class American life but uh, all these spontaneous encounters that you have with people when you're young that uh, when those are repeated um, which you have in a school environment uh, that's how you you get close to people and I just do not have that like there's no spontaneous encounters here like I said I mean maybe when I walk to the mailbox there's a slight chance I could run into somebody but it's not at all um, the same thing it's a it's a it's a life of isolation this modern life in the suburbs and when I lived in Carborough I not only did I have my four housemates who you're, you know, intersecting with constantly in their lives and their friends, their girlfriends, that sort of thing. But also this this walkable town of Carborough. When you are walking to the grocery store, to the coffee shop, to the bar, you, and, and the town is small, everyone else is walking everywhere. You're running into people constantly. Hey, how's it going? And, and what I noticed there, it's like, you know, everybody in Carborough seemed to be playing in, several bands and you would just uh form new relationships just because you're randomly encountering people all the time like the barista at the coffee shop um is somebody that i hung out with uh this time around i mean when i lived there there was several baristas at the coffee shop that i used to frequent and i used to see them all the time because i would be having coffee there almost every day and I eventually became friends with several of these people. And all these years later, when I traveled back to North Carolina, you know, I, I went to the, the birthday party of one of these women who now is married and has kids. But the reason we're friends is because of these random spontaneous encounters that I had because I was in this small little walkable town. And there's numerous examples of that in a town like Carborough. In fact, Again, while I was there this time, my buddy Eric and I were taken in the sights of the town. And we were having a couple of beers and some food at this uh, place with an outdoor patio. And even though, uh, you know, Eric doesn't live in that town, my buddy, and I haven't lived there in seven years, uh, we were still ran into people um, that, I mean... Somebody just happened to see my buddy sitting there and ran up to him and said, hey, you know, come to the show tonight. And we end up going to that show and hang, you know, seeing this guy play some music later that night. I walked around town uh, just from one end of the town to the other and literally having not been there in seven years, I must have seen five, six, seven people that I recognized that had just not moved just from all those years ago. And that is something that never happens to me in the town that I live because, I mean, you'd have to get in your car and, and set a specific planned meeting with people, you know, to have a social event. And, of course, I do that. I mean, we go, my wife and I go to potlucks and this and that. But 
it's it just seems like it's harder to form the types of relationships um, that lead to intimacy and like these enduring friendships in this isolative world. So what I, and I'll post this article too about the, basically how our built environments, I believe is the term, or housing choices uh, impact how we, maintain friendships and this is just in in terms of modern history this is has not been the way it's been for very long i mean it's only been a couple generations that people live like this it used to be you'd not live in a single family dwelling that wasn't the ideal you'd have extended family everywhere you'd have sort of a built-in sense of community and uh, when you think about the things a lot of people are lacking in today's society. It seems like uh, that uh, the sense of community is a huge one. There's another guy I ran into on Twitter called Joe Edelman. And he is uh, also linked to this article. That's how I discovered him. And he, he phrased it in a very interesting way. Edelman says in a tweet, quote, the five most powerful technologies of isolation smartphones, cars, suburbs, TV, and single-family homes arose just in the last century. And uh, that's something to ponder. And, and I like his term, um, the technology of isolation, because you can definitely see how all of those things seem to be leading us toward lives of increasing isolation doesn't have to be that way and i'm sure it's not that way for everybody but if you sit back and look at the patterns uh, obviously smartphones I, mean, I don't have to tell anyone i mean everyone can see it when you go home for the holidays everyone's staring at their phone instead of talking to each other even friends that are having dinner with each other are looking down at their phones i mean it's it has this very paradoxical effect where we've never been more connected in some ways, but uh, at least as I'm as I'm seeing it, it seems to be leading to more and more isolation and loneliness. I mean, when you can be in a crowded room full of people and just put your head into that phone, and uh, the, you know that's the thing that's keeping you from making a, a, a real human connection in that moment. And so many people are doing this. Whereas again, not to be too nostalgic, but back in the day, uh, if you didn't have that phone, you'd be striking up a conversation with someone. You'd have to rely and develop your social skills in a different way. So I, I think most people would agree smartphones and some of this technology is actually contributing to isolation. We already mentioned like cars and suburbs. I mean, when you're, again, in a walkable town like Carborough, North Carolina, you're just running into people just because that's what happens when you go to the store or do anything because you're walking everywhere and you're going to run into people and you're going to have spontaneous social encounters. You're not having those encounters in a car. Um, your car is obviously, you know, you might pass somebody, hey, and wave at them or something, but you're not going to have a social interaction with someone in your car. I mean, you're in a little box, you're driving. Um, people are not making connections with other people in cars. Uh, suburbs is the third technology of isolation. And again, that's this um, just this trend where everybody lives in their, their own single family house and has their own little plot of land and fence. And it doesn't seem conducive in the same way as like... Uh, Again, obviously, living in a big house with your friends or in a dorm or an apartment complex or someplace where you're just having to run in to people. Um, the suburbs, again, tend to just give you that vibe of isolation. And some people, of course, want that. It's like, leave me alone. You know, I don't want to have to hear your dog. I don't want to have to deal with you. You don't mess with me. I don't mess with you. Um, and then television, single-family homes. So... All of these things seem to be new, and I think 
the general vibe is that, I mean, if you take sort of uh, that argument uh, that basically we evolved from hunter-gatherers and we lived in tribes and that we're sort of wired to have this tribal nature. We want to have our, our group and we sort of need that. Um, we need it to be psychologically healthy. Again, it's not enough, uh, just tying this together with what I was talking about before, about your own individual health model, where it's just all about exercise and diet and, and what you're putting into your body. Um, it, it's not, you know, that's a, maybe just another symptom of the super hyper individualism when you're just looking at everything in terms of the isolated in, you know, person, but that's not, uh, how we evolved and maybe, and this is speculative. I'm not gonna, you know, make a grand statement about this, but I'm not the only one maybe thinking about it. But when you look at the dramatic rise of mental illness, depression, anxiety, um, addiction, all of these things, and and the uh, the author Johan Hari has written a couple of very interesting books. His book on addiction is called Chasing the Scream, and his latest book on depression and anxiety is called Lost Connections. And he's essentially making the point, as I believe I've mentioned before, that um, it's this this lack of community, this lack of connection to other people that's really at the root of a lot of the mental illnesses that we're facing as individuals. So it's not a matter of the, we have uh, unbalanced chemistry in our brains. It's just this l sense of isolation is not how we're meant to live. And so it's causing us to be, um, to be sort of unhealthy. Uh, so Johan Hari always says, you know, the opposite of addiction is connection. And he sees the main cause of addiction, not as the chemical hooks of an intense drug, but that the thing that's driving addiction is a loneliness and a sense of disconnection from other people and that the cure is never going to be simply a matter of some other miracle drug that's going to fix it. It's a matter of, uh, having meaning and purpose in your life, which always involves making connections with other people. And when people are able to do that, um, that's when addiction a lot of times resolves. And likewise, uh, the same thing with depression and anxiety. It's not simply a matter or even mainly a matter of what's happening in the brain per se. In other words, it's not going to be a, an intervention to the brain that's going to be the thing that unlocks the mystery of why so many people are depressed and anxious and hurting because it has to do more with our relationships to each other. And when that's healthy, when we have a sense of purpose and our values are healthy values and um, we feel connected and loved, you're not going to see uh, depression and anxiety crop up. And, uh, of course, there's a biological element and a social element and a psychological element to everything. But uh, these larger social and relationship causes tend to be given short shrift and the focus is on what's happening in the brain and we, we get mesmerized by brain scans and hopes of a new drug that's going to fix this or that. But um, I'm in agreement that I think the focus uh, is in the wrong place there. Obviously, we want to keep doing research into the brain and we want to keep having great drugs that people can take and all that. But if you're going to do that and ignore sort of the, the main cause, then you're just forever going to be chasing the symptoms. 
And if as a culture and as a society, all these trends, the way that we're living our lives, if, if it's making us, you know, more isolated, more disconnected from others, um, that's the thing that uh, maybe we should focus on. It's obviously more difficult. Uh, be easier to just kind of take a pill. But an, a thing that's very insidious is that, you know, taking the pill or alleviating the symptoms in an individual just keeps the status quo kind of as it is. So if everybody just took a pill and it made their anxiety go away, then we would never have that opportunity to learn what the anxiety was signaling to us, which usually is uh, how I'm living my life is not congruent with something deeper. And maybe this will be the last thing that I comment on for this podcast. One of the things I've been uh, doing this summer a lot, definitely not podcasting, but I've been working on uh, this book that I've been trying to write, but mostly not writing for the last 15 years. And the book is like part memoir, part, it's like a quasi-fictional soul-searching type of a thing where, you know, the writing of the book itself uh, isn't just the telling of a story, but it's it's uh, sort of part of the the path of self-knowledge and spiritual development or whatever you want. I mean, I, it sounds ridiculous, but it's uh, the very writing of this book and the reflections and the process of doing it to me has been part of my my path and I've been mostly not writing it uh, for the same reasons that we resist everything that's kind of good for us but also time constraints but now that I have the summers off uh, instead of playing a lot of music or doing a lot of podcasting like I thought I was going to do I ended up diving into this book and part of that was to dive deep into my uh, old journals and I've been keeping a journal since 1993 and it's a lot of work just to go through that um, I had just have it organized by year and month so I've got 1993 you open that file you got January February you got 12 files inside that and then you have every year all the way up to 2018 and um, that's been fascinating because one of the interesting things about waiting for so long to tackle this project and to kind of finish it up is that the distance in time between now and the things I'm writing about uh, is so long that it's like I'm reading about another person. A lot of this, uh, the main thrust of starting to write the book was um, back in 2007 when I, I lived in Mexico for a year. And, you know, that's more than 10 years ago. And so even when I'm going back and reading journal entries from that time, there's just all kinds of things I'm reading about that I have utterly forgotten about. Um, I'm, and I have all correspondences and emails between friends and family. I mean, I'm, I'm reading it like I'm, I'm reading this stuff for the first time, almost like I'm reading a novel and not quite understanding that the, the main character is myself. And so that's been really fascinating. And one of the interesting things, just to tie off this podcast, is there was a, a letter that I wrote to my dad. Um, this is back in 1998. Um, I was living in San Francisco getting my first master's degree at the California Institute of Integral Studies, and I was heavily into all psychology from a self-discovery perspective. And the thing that got me on that entire path, the whole reason why I became a psychology major and eventually became interested in all the things I'm interested in that I talk about on this podcast, um, of course it was always there, but if there was one major event that was kind of the the turning point. It was back when I was an undergraduate 
and I had my first anxiety attack. It was during final exam week, I believe, just freshman year, first semester. Um, you know, I was still getting used to the pressures of being at a fairly selective college with a lot of smart people, and I wasn't in high school anymore where I could just coast. It was a little more difficult to try to get straight A's, and um, during this final exam, I was so worked up about it that uh, I started to just have what I guess you'd consider an anxiety attack, or a, I don't think it was a full-fledged panic attack, but I was paralyzed by this anxiety, and I just couldn't take the exam. I had to get up out of the lecture hall, walk out of the lecture hall, and time was ticking, time was ticking, and the, one of the TAs came out and said, hey, man, what's wrong? I was like, I don't know. I'm just I'm freaking out. I just uh, I started to freak out, and I just couldn't focus and answer any of the questions, and this person helped calm me down uh, just by talking to me. I went back in, and I ended up acing the thing, and I only and, and I was only even in the room for like 20 minutes out of the hour I had to take the test, and that was an eye-opener. And um, also, I believe, during final exam week, I the same thing happened, that I ended up staying up like and not sleeping for several nights in a row. And when I was reflecting on all this, I started reading about anxiety and, you know, what the hell is going on here? There's this crazy thing. It's like a self-defeating uh, mechanism. You know, there's this part of myself that's trying to, you know, sabotage my life. Why would there be a part of myself that wants me to fail on an exam or wants me to, to, to bomb when I'm trying to hit on a girl or that wants me to choke in a big moment in a sporting event or something? So I was looking at anxiety as this thing that was against me, uh, a symptom that had to be eradicated. And... At a certain point, and uh, I don't know if it was a result of reading anything, I think it was just, it just occurred to me that anxiety was not a symptom to be eradicated, but was a, was me. It was, it, it, it was myself, and there was, a, it was a signal. It was something trying to get my attention, something that I needed to pay attention to. And when I just looked at it that way, everything shifted. When I stopped fighting it, trying to vanquish it, and realized that it was just me. I mean, it was like when you're hungry, it's a signal that you need to get some food. Um, when you're tired, you know, same thing. It's just a signal that that you need to attend to. It's the same with fear. I mean, if uh, if you're feeling afraid, uh, it's just a good thing. You don't want to you don't want to not have access to that part of yourself when uh, you know, there's a mountain lion, you know, around the bend. It's information that you need to attend to. So my dad, who struggled with anxiety his whole life, he and I got in a uh, letter writing exchange and because he knew I was studying psychology, this is now after my undergrad years and I'm at I'm about 27, 28 years old, and he's asking me about anxiety and what my take on it was because he's going to see psychiatrists and maybe going to be on meds. And, and so I wrote him a long letter uh, with my perspective on anxiety from this, you know, what must have seemed to him as this crazy womb perspective. Um, but it was a really beautiful letter. I'm, I don't know time to read it uh, in its entirety here but I I, I cert, you know I validated my dad and told him you know there was nothing wrong with taking meds and sometimes you gotta take the edge off so you can function and I told him about cognitive behavior approaches and again the pharmacological approaches but I encouraged him to uh, I wanted him to have the same insight that I had basically and that I tried to get across to him that there was another way to view anxiety and that this way was a way that really changed the whole way that I was living. 
and you know first of all by acknowledging that it's an unavoidable part of life but it's not something uh to be resigned to like uh, but it's it's something that you need to be to open to and to respond to and changing that mindset from wanting to get rid of anxiety to listening to it, uh, to view it as a potential source of information about ourselves and our lives. And in discovering that you might find, and I found, and I was hoping my father would find, I, I don't believe he ever did, that anxiety uh, can be one of the most accurate sources of information about ourselves and our lives if we attend to it uh, in a particular way. You can even come to trust it. Uh, and once you do that, it won't seem like anxiety is manifesting for no reason, uh, like it often does when you're disconnected, like you have a panic attack. You don't even... You might not even know why you're anxious. It's just kind of ha seems like it's happening. But once you you stop turning away from it and turn toward it, uh, I found, and I tried to communicate this to my dad in a letter, that there's always an important, uh, a dead-on truth that my anxiety was trying to reveal to me. And very similarly to like if you were heading down a dark alley and there was like a, gang of ne'er-do-wells you know it's that anxiety is signaling something about the situation that you have to attend to that and if you don't you're going to get yourself in trouble or if you're standing at a you know on a ledge near in your 40 foot drop that little shot of anxiety is letting you know you need to be careful and even though it's more complex in other situations uh, my suggestion to my dad was well, anytime you're feeling anxiety, it's not a glitch in your physiological constitution that needs to be fixed. There's something of real value to be learned by exploring your anxiety more deeply and more fully. And you're able to do that when you have the realization that your anxiety is, isn't a symptom to be vanquished, but it's really, it's just you, uh, it's as much a part of you as as anything else. It's um, hunger, love, anything, any experience that you're having, it's giving you a signal, it's giving you important information that, uh, that you need to attend to. And for me, that shift had the crazy paradox of dissolving the anxiety. I'm sure many of us have, have had this experience before. Like if you're uh, anxious and you're uh, to do a public speaking gig, the best thing you can do is let everyone know that. Say, you know, even right over the mic, wow, I'm super nervous right now. <laughs> you can see I'm shaking and everybody laughs and everyone understands. And just verbalizing that you were anxious, paying attention to it, uh, it tends to dissipate. And if you were to just push it away and pretend like it wasn't happening, uh, it's going to get you. It's the same thing with all, all anxieties. If you're anxious in your relationship with a, with a woman and you're kind of young and in your twenties or whatever, the best thing you can do is to just admit it and then watch it kind of go away. So, um, now I'm, I'm definitely forgetting the connection. I would love to tie this into a little bow, but I can say, um, that that was an interesting uh, interaction with my dad and it definitely um, was something that uh, I carry with me into my work now. You know, even when I'm working with the kids at the school, I really encourage them to look at what's going on, their feeling, you know, feelings and thoughts from a place of being curious and what can I learn from what's happening and not, not from a, a position of wanting this to go away. And again, I think that fits with, uh, with everything else, uh, 
that we're talking about. Let me try to let me try to tie the bow. Johan Hari connection being um, the move to go, not viewing things as a glitch in your brain, not viewing your depression or anxiety as uh, a chemical imbalance, but understanding that it it's deeper connections to how you're living your life. Um, also kind of making the connection between, uh, being isolated, we're talking about, uh, the way we live, um, living in, in our smartphones and, uh, in our little houses in the burbs, those of us are fortunate enough to afford it and how that has an isolating effect. So if I can tie it all together, uh, it's just, again, as usual, Focusing on connection intrapersonally, interpersonally, um, uh, person to environment, um, focusing on connection and moving from that, that uh, sense of isolation toward connection is where it's at. I uh, can't, definitely can't connect this to the skin cancer thing right now, so I'm not even going to try. I'm going to hang it up for now. This has been one of the longer ramblings that I've produced. And it's the best that I can do. Obviously, I didn't, as always, didn't prepare for a second and just rambled. And hopefully, if I am able to do this more often, once the school year starts, I will get better at it instead of just putting it off and uh, just vomiting into the microphone every couple of months. But what can you do? Uh, you can give me feedback uh, on Twitter at integral underscore health. I'm also at head the gong because I, I, I do my other podcast, which is called the head the gong podcast, which is more oriented toward my creative projects and so forth. So anyway, uh, that's it. Until next time, be well.